Magda Szczesnowski was born in Liverpool, England in 1961. The family, a Polish father and Scottish mother, immigrated to Australia in 1965 to Melbourne, where Magda grew up, attending Siena College and studying arts law at Melbourne University. It was while she was there, performing in a review, that she met Tom Gleisner and Michael Veitch, who persuaded her to join them in creating what became Degeneration. From there, she went on to work in Fast Forward, developing characters such as We Mary McGregor. <laughs> My parents are Scots, I'm Scots, oh, right. Pixie Ann Wheatley and Lynn Postlethwaite. She wrote, produced and starred in Big Girl's Blouse and took on the character of Esme Hoggart in two Babe films. In 2002, she joined with Gina Riley and Jane Turner in Kath and Kim as the inimitable Sharon Strzlecki. <coughs> Jeffrey Rush today in The Guardian wrote a wonderfully hagiographic piece on Magda <laughs> in which he says, maybe it's no coincidence that Magda was born on the same day that Yuri Gagarin became the first human being who went into space and saw our planet from the outside. <laughs> Magda orbits her own private planet, weightlessly, painfully, hilariously, forensically, morphologically, poetically, finding the confrontational therapy of memoir as self-realization. He was referring, of course, to her new memoir, Reckoning, about her life, but also about the life of her father. Please welcome Magda Shazdansky to Milano. <laughs> the book really begins and ends with your father, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And just excuse me, please. I've got a bit of laryngitis, so sorry for that. Husky voice. Um, <laughs> it, it suits you. Oh, thank you. Yes, in my other persona. Um, but um, yes, the, the book, the very first line of the book, um, and actually I hadn't put that line first. The editor moved it. It was a few pages on, and the editor rather shrewdly moved it on. Um, and the very first line of the book is, uh, if you had ever met my father, you would never, not for an instant, have thought he was an assassin. And I think people don't know whether to laugh or not because, of course, they expect from me that it's going to be funny. Yeah. But that actually, um, and that along with the picture on the back, which is of my father in his shorts, me in a poncho, <laughs> hot pants and vinyl boots, um, in front of a, a brick veneer house in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. And um, that, underneath that is that first sentence, underneath that picture. And that kind of sums up the book, really, which is the sense that... Um, all across Australia, in the suburbs, in very humble houses, extraordinary stories uh, have occurred and are being played out. Um, and that was part of what I wanted to tell with my father, was um, for a long time I didn't really have the language to discuss. Um, or just to backtrack a little bit to explain that first sentence. Um, during the war in Poland, my father was recruited at the age of 19 to be an assassin in a top-secret counterintelligence unit whose job was to execute Polish collaborators and protect the HQ of the Polish underground. And his fam he and his entire family, my grandparents, my aunt, my uncle, were all involved in hiding Jewish people. Um, and Poland was the only country where the penalty for hiding a Jew was the death sentence. Um, and some of the collaborators that my father and his unit were killing were telling the Gestapo where Jewish people were hiding. So, you know, th th as you can imagine, um, it was an enormously um, charged atmosphere full of extremely uh, potent emotions. And um, needless to say, you can't do what my father did. And then even though he tried to just leave it behind, um, move on and have a life in the suburbs, mowing the lawn was his way of trying to be normal. Um, you can't just smoothly leave behind all of that. Traces are left behind. And all of my life I was sort of accumulating elements of that and then it took me years in therapy really to understand and process exactly what that legacy was and so the book is called Reckoning because it's at the age of 54 you know you get to middle age and and that really is a time when you do a kind of reckoning um, you're, you're half or more than halfway through your life and you want to make sense of what's gone before in some ways to clear the way for what's about to happen for the last part of your life. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you say is that you kind of make this contention that trauma is genetically transferred. I mean, I'm not sure whether you're saying that metaphorically or actually, or actually you, well, you scientifically. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a comedian, not a scientist, but, um, but um, 
I suspect it is, and increasingly there are reports coming out. There was one just recently, um, a bunch of scientists had done studies with Jewish second generation Holocaust survivor, uh, children of Holocaust, uh, <coughs> Holocaust survivors, and they actually said that the trauma had been, the, the effects of the trauma, the stress, had been transmitted genetically. So, you know, there's more stuff coming out about, about all of that. It's, it's very complicated. I sort of tend to think, um, if you look at a collie dog, a seven-week-old, six-week-old collie dog, it knows by what we call instinct how to herd. What is that if not transferred procedural memory that's transmitted on the DNA? We just call it instinct, yeah. but it's a memory that is carried on the DNA. So, I mean, that's one of the things in, in the book is um, uh, when I started doing a lot of therapy and you become more sensitive to clues that arise from the subconscious, um, I would detect things and I couldn't quite tell where they'd come from or there'd be dreams that haunted me. And, and I began to wonder if they were sort of like the, the, the flotsam and jetsam of, of, you know, trauma from past generations that's collected on the DNA. Um, and I think, you know, certainly, um, um, you know, that's a more contentious topic, but, um, but most people would agree that uh, environmentally and emotionally, uh, even if it's not spoken about, feeling states are transmitted. You know, mm. I picked up a lot of things from my father, not from what he said, not from what he did, <coughs> but schemas of belief about the world, um, odd little things that he would say, ways that he would feel about certain things that were different from my friends. Um, mm. And so I think that, you know, we all impact on one another in very etheric, subtle ways. And um, part of the reason for writing the book is I wanted to communicate what I'd learnt from from a sort of a, a, you know years of a fairly deep introspection really and uh, i mean we seem to be diving in really deeply here we, we have haven't we? Right. straight, straight past the funny we're, 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 we're in chapter 18 here at the moment yeah. uh, but um, the thing about your father was i mean clearly from the book you get the sense of your love for him and your appreciation of him but he was also a bit of a difficult taskmaster wasn't he yeah he was particularly well, when it came to things like tennis yeah oh, i was one phrase to say to you about my father in tennis, Eastern European father tennis coach. <laughs> Conjure with that what you will. Um, he, he actually came from a very, his father was very disciplinary and my grandfather was a senior policeman in Warsaw Police. Uh, and he was also, which I find hilarious, a very prominent judge of Greco-Roman wrestling, which is the gayest thing out. <laughs> but, but he was, he was an extremely, he was a hard man, my grandfather. He was, a, he was a very hard man. But he was, you know, he kind of fascinates me, my Polish grandfather, because um, he was extremely disciplined, but he also had this goodness and altruism in him. And he, that hardness in him, I think, may have informed his ability to be able to do what he did, hiding Jewish people for six long years under, you know, under the threat of, you know, at best death, but more likely torture. Um, and that takes some level of stubborn, you know, yes. and grit. Um, and, and in some ways, what I wanted to do with the book was a taxonomy of courage, um, to understand how courage works and how it was that my family, what was it that fed and sustained them through those six long years, you know, why, why them and why not others? Why did they hide Jewish strangers risking the life of their own children? And why did other people betray people? You mm. know, that was, that was and, and where do I fit into that? Well, exactly, because it comes right down to the core of what you're saying in this book is because your father in some way you feel was training you to be one of the people who'd be capable of doing that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it played itself out in tennis. That's why it seems like such a <coughs> crappy little metaphor, you know. Um, but when you think about it, tennis is very gladiatorial and it is famous for killer instinct. You know, it is, it is a real zero-sum game, terrace, tennis, kill or be killed. And my father informed me at the age of nine that I had no killer instinct because I'd be 5-2 up winning and I'd, I'd see my opponent over the net losing and I'd be overwhelmed with grief and compassion and I'd, I'd lose. <laughs> so he was right. I had no killer instinct. 
But he was determined to try and instill that in you. So he, so he, was, he wasn't going to leave you any space in that. Book. No, he, he, um, he would do whatever it took to beat me and my, my brother and my sister. Um, he would, you know, when we were little kids, he would, he would do anything. He would use pity plays. Um, he would use a campaign of misinformation. He'd tell you to do one thing and then use it against you. Um, and I think he was, you know, he, his experience of the war was not a conventional war experience, although he was a trained officer in the unit that he was in. Um, he, it was a scrappy kind of a war and you had to um, learn how to fight and to keep fighting. Even when, I mean, the Poles had been occupied for 200 years before that and they were still fighting. And even after the war ended, it didn't end for the, war, the Poles because then they had communism. Yeah. So this incredible sort of fighting spirit, which was part of what I wanted to try and understand um, that Polish patriotism and how that had informed um, the, the courage and altruism, but and also, to be frank, some of the more difficult aspects of my family on that yeah. side. Um, one of the things that you're talking about is this capacity to separate oneself from one's feelings. Yeah. That when you're exposed to traumatic situations, it's, it's one of the defense mechanisms of our, of our psych psychic, I suppose, yeah. is that we can actually switch off and we can act um, like an automaton or something, something with incredible rationality without being subject to the emotional forces that normally you'd expect to be there. Yeah. But I think it was Saul Bellow in that fantastic novel, The Adventures of Augie March, I think the opening line of it is, there's no delicacy to suppression. That, no, that it's a blunt you, instrument. Once, once, yeah. you, once you've suppressed things, if you, if you lift the lid on it, you can't, um, you can't control what comes out. Yeah, well, there's two things I sort of say to describe my father. And one is that, imagine doing what he did from the age of 19, and even younger, actually, as is explained in the book, but I won't go into that now. But um, doing what he did, because his unit, they would, uh, first of all, there was this elaborate underground that existed in Poland, and it included a court system. So these things were done through the courts. The people who were... Uh, accused would be tried in absentia, the court would pass a sentence and then my father's unit would conduct surveillance on the person who was found guilty. They would run into like a cafe or wherever they were, read them the charge of what they'd been charged with and then shoot them at point blank range. So it's not sniping, you know. Um, and um, you, as I say, in some ways growing up with my father was like a masterclass in dissociation. Um, and certain, uh, he, and the other way I describe my father is that in order to survive that war, and, and many other people um, I've spoken to, particularly Jewish people, really get this, um, he had to perform a kind of an emotional triage and all of the feelings that were not going to help him survive were jettisoned. And some of them, frankly, never came back, you know. Yeah. And, and that sort of space where those feelings were I kind of, as a kid, you, you, you know, there's that whole thing, I think, in some ways, we live the unlived life of our parents. And I lived the unlived emotional life of my father. He always said, you know, that he, um, after the Warsaw Uprising, he was 20, um, he, he escaped through a sewer, which was an absolutely hellish, I mean, the whole, you know, the whole war from, from go to woe was horrible, although he described it bizarrely, when he was talking about it, it sounded like a boy's own adventure. And, and I could never marry the two things of what I knew about the war and the way my father talked about it. Um, so that was kind of a schizophrenic reality that I was trying to reconcile. Uh, and, um, uh, but, uh, I mean, sorry. excuse me interrupting you yeah, there, but for a second, I mean, as a, as a young person, you didn't really think about many of these things at all, did you? He was just your father. It's only, it's only kind of later that a lot of this comes into oh, play. No? You'd be surprised, actually. Um, I probably didn't have the words necessarily for it, but, um, but there were feelings. I mean, my father, um, after he escaped through the sewer when he was 20 and then he was put in a POW camp, he never saw his parents again. And he went back to Poland, you know, and saw his sister one time and um, everything he knew, he'd grown up, um, his family had this very bourgeois life, going to the theatre, to, the res to restaurants, to the ballet, going skiing in Zakopane, all gone, lost their houses, everything. And my family were cattle trucked out of Warsaw. So it was all gone. And I never saw him grieve for his parents. And he would say, maybe I'm weird, 
but I never grieved for my parents. Even as a young child, I used to weep for my grandparents, whom I had never even met. But I, I, I felt the kids have a sense of justice, but I think also of like a sort of an emotional justice. We, it feels so wrong not to grieve for your parents when you've lost them yeah. and never seen them again. <coughs> and it just, so I flowed into those sort of feeling states. And there was a lot of that that went on. Um, where, um, and then there were just some things that he would say, there was a palpable kind of guilt. He would say, ah, you know, I'm not proud, I'm not ashamed of what I did, what's done is done, you know, and I'm like, what do you mean? You're not proud, you're not ashamed, what did you do, you know? <laughs> Um, and um, so there were, there were a number of things like that that, that um, you know, certainly the words I'm using in the processing of it is from later on and very much informed by therapy, but, um, uh, you know, I was experiencing it all, though, nevertheless. Mm. So, in fact, you went back to when you, kind of skipping forward a little bit, to when yeah. you're about 20 or something like that, you decided to take yourself off to Europe. Yeah. Um, after you dropped, it, I, I can't, I'm not quite ter sure of the chron chronology here, but you've, yeah. you've appeared in your first review with Melbourne University or something like that, and then you decide to go off to London. Is that, no, is that I, am I correct? I, first of all, I, um, I enrolled at Melbourne Uni. Um, I did first year, and um, you know, my sort of dawning realisation that I was a lesbian and finally found the other lesbians via the feminist club at uni, because it was a club. As one does. Uh, yeah, feminism as a hobby, along with Monty the Monty Python Appreciation Society and, <laughs> and bushwalking. Um, um, so I've, I'd sort of found my tribe. Uh, I found other gay people and polymorphously perverse people and, and, um, uh, and I was working in a women's refuge and I was very sort of lefty, feministy, all that sort of very ideological little thing. Um, but I felt this real pull towards Poland and I wanted to go back and understand my history. So at the age of 21, I was the only family member who'd done this. I trekked back, you know, did the, did the whole, you know, did nine hours on a train standing because it was standing room only because it was during martial law in Poland. This was the time of solidarity. So right? Time of the whole solidarity rights and everything. And I um, went to visit my family in Poland and I was the first one uh, who had returned. So it was intensely emotional, as you can imagine. Um, I just cried myself to sleep every night. And the first place that my cousin took me, bizarrely, believe it or not, I have a cousin called Magda Zawadzka, <laughs> who is a famous actress in Poland. Um, very glamorous, very, very glamorous. And um, the first place she took me when I arrived in Poland was to Pawiak, which is a uh, I thought she was going to take me to like a cafe or a restaurant or a museum or something. It's this, it's a, it's a huge uh, old prison that's been in Warsaw for, you know, hundreds of years or 150 years or something. And it's where they used to take people before taking them to the concentration camps. And over the loudspeaker, the guard read out, um, thing, people would find as they were imprisoned there, they would get little tram tickets or a cigarette paper and they would scrawl on it their final message before being sent to be killed. And the guard read, would read these out as we were sitting there. They'd kind of stuffed them into cracks. They'd stuffed them into cracks in the walls. And they, the, the museum had gone back and got them all out and they would read them out. And I sat there with my cousin just bawling. And she said, I'm so sorry for this Magda, but this is your history. This is your father's history. And so I, you know, I'm that one in the family. I'm the, the crazy aunt who's the keeper of the family stories, but, but also I have a nostalgic temperament. But clearly also was a healing journey for me and the beginning of that healing journey of going back and, and, and in some ways, you know, to sort of bring in the comedy of it, I'd run towards the light for so long, you know, the fun, the, the ephemeral, the kind of easy to do. And then at a certain point, I think you, you just you know, life requires balance, the yin and yang, and I needed to know about the dark. And so the, this book is in a lot of ways, people know the sort of light side of me, and it's not without lightness, you know, the book certainly, but um, uh, it, it just, it sets the balance right, I think. And, and it's interesting because one of the 
points where you sit, set the balance right is talking about your mother, who is Scots. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious, because one of the things you don't tell, I don't think in the book, is, is anything about how your father and mother met. I mean, I, he's, I briefly he's, do, he's, yeah. he's in He's escaped, presumably, from yeah. the POW camps and got himself somehow to the United Kingdom. Yeah. And it... What was going on for your mother that she chose somebody to marry? Because, I mean, clearly he must have been quite a damaged individual at this point. Well, uh, he was very good looking. <laughs> he was a very handsome man, my father, and he was very charming. But her, um, I think it's a lot of it was because they were Catholic. My mother's a Scottish Catholic, which is more unusual. And her, the women in her family have always married out. Her mother married an Irishman. Um, her great-grandmother her great married a Swiss-Italian. Um, uh, and um, my mother and her sisters were all born with the name McCarthy and they all married ex-POWs, Poles and Hungarians. So these McCarthy girls ended up with the curlicued names Shubainsky, Sosnovsky and Modjor. <laughs> um, so basically my father and the other Polish officers were at Dunfermline Glen um, and my mum and um, her sisters were, were there as well and they met and socialised and then they used to come back to the house uh, and, um, you know, sing songs and um, they were, the Polish officers were absolutely charming, you know, they all came because of the officer class, you know. Yeah. So they, they were, you know, lovely manners and they, they did that whole thing of kissing your hand and clicking their heels and they do utterly charming. And, um, um, you know, uh, I've tried to get out of my mother the stories of exactly how they, how they fell in love and what it was about and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. She's, she, she's the sphinx, she won't tell me. <laughs> but they did, they, they fell in love and, and, um, and I think he was, I mean, at that time, not 1945, 1946, who wasn't damaged, yeah. really? Uh, hardly anyone on the planet, yeah. really. And I'd just like to say I went to school in Dunfermline for four years. Oh, and get I, out. And I, and I was very damaged by being there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. But, I mean, one of the things that you, you say is that your mother is the comedian. Your mother is the one who, is the, who, is, who has taught you everything you know about, about yeah. humour in some ways. Yeah, my mother is really funny. And um, I she's just... Not, she's, you didn't base We Mary McGregor on her. <laughs> no, my mother's teetotal, but I did see her quite tipsy one time at Hogmanay, which is Scottish New Year, um, when uh, she'd had a few too many and she was leading a band of women trying to get the kilt off the lone piper. Um, <laughs> it's very atypical and she'll hate me telling that. My mother keeps saying, oh, for God's sake, what are you going to blab about next? Um, but her, she and her sisters are are really funny and I describe it as being this sort of matrilineal hegemony of funny women and her sisters and her cousins when they get together it's like a screwball comedy from the 1930s just one line is zinging all over the place and the, the best example of that in the 50s just after the war they were all sitting in the kitchen and um, my auntie Mary, my auntie Kathleen and my mum and um, they, they had pulleys over the kitchens and they used to hang all the washing in it so that it would dry in the kitchen and as they're sitting there being all hoity-toity, suddenly a huge bear, pair of my Uncle Bernard's jocks fell into my Auntie, Mary, Auntie Mary's lap. Without missing a beat, she went, just my luck, empty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I cite that as an example. That's, they're so fast and furious with my, that coming from my mum yeah. that I, I couldn't keep up with it. But, the journeys from up the hill from school, from primary school up the hill to our home at the top of the hill were like Jesuit training in wittiness. You know, I, I, I failed. I'm, I'm not nearly as funny as she is. She tried to teach me, though. Yeah. And, in fact, I, I mean, I think there was a period where you, one of your first performances, they witnessed it, and at the end of it, she said yeah. that you, you had made it. What was the Both story? Both of them did. Um, I did a um, school production of um, Salad Days um, when I was in convent school, and uh, the moment my foot hit the stage, it was a sense of homecoming. And I felt absolutely like I belonged. And I'd gone through, um, you, you know, the dislocation of moving here when I was five, leaving behind all our family, my beloved grandmother. We were here only a year when my father got cancer, very life-threatening cancer. Um, my mother went out to work. Um, I had my, the dawning realisation of my sexuality, 
um, it was, you know, a lot of things were really rocking my boat. Um, and I, it actually plunged me into, into a reactive depression. And, um, uh, and I had a miserable few years. I was also dumped by the cool kids, at, you know, you name it, you know. Um, and um, uh, that feeling of homecoming when my foot hit the stage, uh, that this is where I belong and that I, I felt no longer on the outside, but at the red hot centre of life, was an extraordinary feeling. But what was also amazing was that, um, as I described it in the book, it was a chemical reaction and my parents were having the same thing. My father, for two reasons. <coughs> One, that I was playing a middle-aged character and I looked exactly like his mother, <laughs> which must have been a freaky experience to see this theatrical reincarnation of his mother on the stage for someone who'd never seen his mother from the age of 20. And the other thing was that my father very rarely gave praise. I mean, very rarely. I mean, never. And um, uh, he turned to my mother and said, She's got it about me. Um, and um, yeah, and, and from, from then on, he was incredibly supportive. He was there. My, my parents were there. Every play I did, you know, every episode of Degeneration, they would come along, my whole family, you know. And that was, that was it. I was sort of on my path. But it's interesting, in the book you talk about this, that although you, uh, although you had found your métier, as it were, you still didn't, when you were offered a part in Degeneration, you refused. I mean, it was like, it yeah. was like you refused three times, the crop crowed. Yeah. It, was only, it was only on the fourth day or something. That yeah. I, I call that chapter Degeneration and De Profundis because um, by that time at uni, I'd read Oscar Wilde's De Profundis, uh, which was when his glittering career had come to a terrible end after the trial with the, um, um, oh, Queensbury, the, you know. Yes, yeah, well, he'd, been, he'd been sent off to the jail. He'd been sent off to Reading Jail, and yeah. um, I can't, sorry, I'm not operating on all cylinders. Um, and um, uh, everything had gone horribly wrong for him um, because he'd been outed and, and then, you know, the, the message basically was that um, gay people cannot fly too high. Um, and there was similarly Alan Turing the famous crypto analyst who, you know, cracked the Enigma code. Yeah. And the thanks he got for that was to be chemically castrated. Yeah. So, you know, if you think those messages don't sink in for gay people, we hear that. What do you think that makes us feel about ourselves? And what do you think that makes us feel about how f high we can fly? You know, I clipped my own wings because I had absorbed those messages. So um, when they came to me for degeneration, and it was this mainstream program, um, I was completely ambivalent, as I was when Hollywood, you know, offered me. Like seriously, I had the best managers in Hollywood. They started Saturday Night Live. They represented Mike Myers and Jim Carrey, and they said to me, you know, we want to make you into a major network star and then move you into movies, and it was laid out on a platter. But that message had, as I said, it had, it had corrupted my operating system. And, um, and so I'd, it wasn't for want of talent. It wasn't for want of talent at all. It was simply because I did not know how I could be gay and fly as high as I thought I could in this world at that time. But you've also said that you didn't regret not following up at Hollywood. No, Hollywood's mad, you know. Um, <coughs> there's also a sane part of me that, uh, you know, I got lots of cracks and fissures, and 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 I think for someone like me to be in an earthquake zone is not a good idea. <laughs> um, but also, it really um, uh, it's it's what's sometimes referred to as a very ego dystonic place. You know, it puts you at odds with your very basic morality, and um, I felt not quite strong enough. There was enough healthy part of my psyche that knew that if I went there, things could, might not go well for me. Mm. So it was a combination of things, but, but mostly, you know, it was, it was a sexuality thing. At when you first discovered you were gay, we're talking 1972, 75, when I, something? When I fell in love with my friend. I mean, I'd been playing with boys and girls. From, I started young, you know. <laughs> but um, uh, it was really um, when I was about 12, 1973, and um, uh, my best friend and I used to pash um, as she, she went to Croydon High where it was all the rage and it was practising for boys. And for her it was practising for boys, but for me it wasn't. 
Um, and, and that was a completely terrorising and terrifying realisation. Because there, there is, I mean, well, you said, how did you feel about being a gay? Um, I felt disgusted by myself, you know, because that was really how uh, gay people were treated. They were objects of, I'd never met another gay person, but I'd heard about gay people, and it was always used as a sneer and a slur. Yeah. Um, and um, it was like, you know, it was like being a leper. It, yes. was, it was kind of, at that time, it was conflated with paedophilia. Um, it was just seen as being, it, was, it wasn't even legal. It wasn't legal till 1980, you know. It was actually illegal. So, um, and it was, it was, it was um, I think it was 78 when it was, or maybe 75, 76, when it was, um, the DMSV changed it from being a psychiatric illness. Um, it's known in the gay community, jokingly, as the mass cure. Well, because suddenly we weren't, we weren't ill anymore because the, the, the big bible of psychiatry said we weren't. Um, so, um, you know, uh, in 1973-74, to be realising that you're gay, or mo as I say gay, 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 a little bit, not gay, 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 um, uh, was, was the most terrifying thing to be because um, we're all social animals and I felt, I, t I was scared that I would be isolated from the herd. Or completely ostracised, yes. Completely, I mean, it was, yeah. You were going to be, you were going to be outcast for yeah. that. Well, we yeah. put it, have a bell round your neck and, yeah. and walk Yeah, and, and really you would have, you know, and that's why kind of now, you know, you don't go from the discourse of shame to the discourse of pride with nothing but a parade to help you through. You know, the number of, the number of um, uh, gay people of my age and older who've been so damaged by the um, homophobia that we experienced and then because things have suddenly got better, it's like your psyche is meant to have caught up, you know. And, and we, we need to do a lot of healing work, really. Yeah. To me, probably the most moving part of the book is where you actually go back to tell your mother and father. And this is many, many years later, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was nearly outed by a women's magazine. Um, and uh, this woman was an absolute toe cutter. I went to the interview with her and she kept pushing the wine glass towards me and trying to loosen me up. And uh, as I said before, little did she know I was trained by an assassin. <laughs> um, and um, so when she finally said to me, um, you know, you're, um, she said, there are rumours and one of them is that you're homosexual. No, she actually said, one of them is that you're homosexual. I hate that pronoun, homosexual. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and this strange cool came over me and I, and I said, oh, really? And she said, how do you feel about that? And I said, I don't care. I said, people can say whatever they like, I don't care. And I felt very comfortable with that because I knew that I would never lie. If, I've, if I was ever outright asked, I would never lie. But I, I was also a very private and quite shy person, you know. And it wasn't something that I wanted to discuss publicly. And that allowed me an area where I could kind of like be myself, be honest, but not disclose. Um, but I knew then that there was a possibility she was going to out me in the magazine. And um, so I thought, oh, I've got to go and tell my parents. So I went to see my brother, who at that point was sporting a ZZ Top beard down to his waist. <laughs> and. Um, uh, and a ponytail, and he was a real sort of biker dude. And, um, and I said, I want to go and tell mum and dad. And he was gorgeous. This is my big brother, Chris, who's eight years older than me. My sister was away at the time. And he said, um, if they attack you, I'll defend you. And he said, if they're prepared to wear you like a bright, shiny coat, they have to take the good with the bad. And so I went home, and it was a Sunday night, and it was about 8.30, and my mother, who loves a visit, she said, ooh, ooh, this is a very unusual time for a visit. <laughs> and um, the television was on and I said, oh, <clears throat> do you mind if we turn the TV off? I want to discuss something. And she literally rubbed her hands with glee and said, <laughs> oh, yes, we love to have a chat. <laughs> Little knowing what I was going to discuss. Um, and, then, and then I just sort of started to talk about my sexuality and... Um, Mum continued to ask me questions and so did Dad and, and they were beautiful and, and they said, we love you, you know, Dad said, I'm disappointed, I won't have grandchildren, but we hugged and it was very emotional um, and um, still a journey to go on too because people think, um, maybe they think from the book that, you know, because my parents 
embraced me and they loved me, that it was all smooth from there. It was pretty much, but there's still an education and a process to go on. And I was very aware of the fact that I'd had quite some time to process this information and I needed to allow my parents to be their best selves and for them to have that opportunity to process it and for us in the most loving way to process it together, which, which we did and it, it actually has been incredible. Mum did say to me though, and um, oh, oh, I love you, but for God's sake, don't go in that bloody Mardi Gras. <laughs> <coughs> and there I was, a, you know, a couple of years ago, the head of the parade. <laughs> And, and perhaps it was your capacity to give them that time that made it such a successful transition for them in some ways. Yeah, I've, I've thought about it long and hard and how to do it. And a friend of mine had done it off the back of a homophobic remark that his father had made, which meant that immediately his father was defensive. And so I thought, I don't want to do that. You know, I want to allow them to be their best selves. And, and I know they're beautiful people and, you know. But, but I also knew that when it comes to sexuality, people are irrational. And when it comes to disgust about sexual acts, people can't control it. You know, they have no control over it. Yeah. And that's the thing is that um, you're up against when you have any kind of sexuality that's out of the norm. Um, and so what I didn't know was what that irrational part of my parents, how that might react, you know. Yeah. Because I, I have friends who have very liberal parents and they've told their parents, and it hasn't gone well at all. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, um, you know, there's this kind of myth of coming out as though you should do it and it'll be amazing. It's like the born-again Christian myth, you know. Um, the truth is it's a complex journey. Um, you have to do it at the right time. It's different for everyone. And I don't believe that it's safe for everyone to come out. No. I wish it was, but unfortunately for some people it still isn't. I think, though, that you could say, fairly say that not just coming out to your parents, but coming out to the world, as you did on the project, yeah. has been a, a, a very good thing for you personally. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me, reading your book, that's the sense I get, that you felt like it is, has liberated you in, in some totally. way. Totally. I couldn't have written the book had I not come out, because there would have been huge chunks that would have been missing, or I would have sort of skirted around or whatever. Yeah. And when I came out, the first thing that happened was the... Um, there was a lot of healing that needed to be done. There was the gay healing, but then there was the Eastern European kind of lizard brain part of me that had grown up from an early age, exposed to the horrors of the Holocaust, that had seen the heart of human darkness via my father. And I had no illusions from a very early age of what humanity is capable of, especially to minority groups. And that very much informed my homosexuality and my coming out process. Hmm. So the two things kind of converged, as the book does in a way, um, with my coming out, because what happened was um, it healed and empowered me as a gay person to have the love and acceptance of Australians. But it also healed me as an Eastern European to have things not go horribly wrong, to be in a country where I wasn't persecuted and to have love and acceptance from the Australian public was an extraordinary experience and I'm extremely grateful for it. Especially when I think about what people are going through in um, Uganda and Nigeria. Yes, yeah. we, we tend to be very critical of ourselves a lot of the time as a nation, but there, in, yeah. some, in some ways we're, we're doing all right. Yeah, could we just get the law sorted out though with the marriage <laughs> equality thing? <laughs> Let's go back to your career just for a minute and, and after a time of doing Degeneration and Fast Forward and Big Girls Blouse and uh, Babe and Babe Pig in the City, which I would just like to say, I think the second film is fantastic. I know it didn't do you're terribly well, the, but I, I loved it. I thought it was with the orangutans and everything. I just, yeah. I thought it was the most beautiful film. I really did. I've always enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I just, a lot of, a lot just of, just want that on the record. A lot of filmmakers really like that second film, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But you then teed up with, Gina Riley and Jane Turner. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Well, um, we'd, we'd kind of, um, as was reported in the tabloids, I hated Gina on site and she hated me. <laughs> um, I thought she was a crash show-off and she thought I was a stuck-up snob and we were both right. Um, <laughs> a a stuck-up snob from Croydon? 
Although oh, you, yeah, did, no, oh, you, did, you did describe Croydon as the Bauhaus's bastard child. Who yeah. Their yeah. So I clearly you were speaking, a snob. Yeah. I was a snob. I was a snob. No, I'd been to Melbourne Uni by that time. Believe me, I was a snob. Um, and, um, uh, you know, so often it's the case, isn't it, with true love stories, it, it doesn't start off well. Um, but anyway, we, we became firm friends and Mark Downey I'd known since I was 11 and Jane, I met Jane Turner and um, through the whole fast forward experience, you know, as you can probably appreciate, comedy is an extremely male dominated uh, pastime or you know, career. And um, we, we just, uh, and we're realising now what an anomaly we are. Because I was thought, you know, Jenna and I were talking about this the other day, we thought there would be other women who would come along like us, teams of women. But it really hasn't happened. That sort of magic of the four of us, where we find one another funny, we click. And at one time we were sitting, the four of us having um, dinner, and I said, do you ever sometimes think that we share the one, and Marg went, brain? <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a, an amazing synergy, and that allowed us to flourish in a very male-dominated world in a, in a way that I think our individual talents might not have because um, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not... Are we pushy? Are we ambitious? We probably are some of those things, but, but I think it, it, just, it just gave us a bit of a bulwark around us and a confidence that we found one another funny. And, um, um, and then at the end of Fast Forward, Gina and Jane and I, Mark, I think Mark was having a kid or something. I, was, I don't know why Mark wasn't there, but um, Gina and Jane and I decided that we wanted to do our own show. Um, and um, just, you know, without having anyone else telling us what we could or couldn't do, put on the sketches that we found funny. And what was interesting was when we first started writing, we couldn't write. Because everything is, you know, the joke starts with a man walks into a shop. And we did a parody of that actually in the show. It never starts with a woman walks into a shop. The idea of writing from a woman's perspective was, it just sort of didn't exist. And so we had to invent a language in some ways for ourselves. So it was, it was quite a task in a lot of ways. Yeah, and one of the things about the book, the advertising and the blurbs of the book all talk about it being your first book, but yeah. you've been writing for decades. And yeah. in, fact, in fact, this was quite new to me. I didn't understand that you had written quite a lot of the sketches that you were doing in those, yeah. in those early days. Yeah, and we started out, um, uh, as I also describe in the book, um, I, you know, I, I struggled with writing to begin with and, and I had a real terror of the blank page and, and you know, constantly I've been having to conquer that. And during the time of Fast Forward, it, there was a team of most male writers, I think maybe there was one female, but all male writers. And, um, and I realised that what made you a writer was having the balls to call yourself one and a laptop of one's own. Yeah. Um, and, and so I went and I got a laptop and I went into the writer's room and I thought, well, screw it. I, 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 I'm going to call myself a writer. And I just and I just did, and it, it sort of started from there. And, and the other thing that comes out of that anecdote really is how much effort goes into the writing of a three to five minute sketch. Yeah. It, it might take weeks, oh my God. weeks and weeks of of three or four people in a room throwing ideas off each other. Yeah, people think that we sit around just making one another laugh, and then we transcribe it. You know. Um, we would, we would start work, we, we would go to one another's houses and we'd start work at 9am every day and finish at 5pm every day and we would write, write, write the whole time. Um, and we would fall about laughing while we were doing it. We'd be playing characters and mucking around. It was enormous fun. But it's also hard work. And, and in some ways, to be really honest, I found writing this book easier than writing comedy. Writing comedy is brain-busting because you've got to be so concise and funny and get your point across. It's it's really hard, and you need to be quite adrenalised to um, to write. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if sketch comedy is a young person's game because you know that sort of anger or at the world that you need you, you mellow out a bit as you get older. Yeah, I mean that was going to be my next question was after working in collaboration because your writing process. Am I correct to say your writing process through the comedic? The comedy years was always in collaboration with yeah. other writers. How was it then to suddenly say, well, I'm going to sit in a room by myself and do this process? Uh, I absolutely loved it. 
Um, I, I love collaboration, but as a different experience with this, there were no distractions, there was nothing pulling you out of finding the truth of the moment. Um, like sometimes when you're writing collaboratively, writing a sketch, you, you've got a glimpse of something and you're about to get it and someone else says something and you get distracted and then you lose the thread. Whereas when you're writing on your own, you know those little things that are just like mercury across the surface, right? just flitting across. You, when you write on your own, you actually have the time to pursue those and you can sink right into the depths of your soul and, and your unconscious and really um, um, get to grips with things in a way that sometimes other people, because of their own issues, won't let you go there. And, and you can just pursue whichever avenue you want to pursue. So I, I, I absolutely loved writing this book. The, the, the first draft of the manuscript was 851 pages. And I have to say, it was, was a kind of a, um, a, 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 what would be, um, it had lots of critical essay breakouts and lots of notes, uh, footnotes, you would have loved it. <laughs> um, and uh, they ended up, because I'd sort of digress and I'd, I'd done lots of research about various subjects and, and it, it was just an, ex I just did a big blurt document and, and got out everything that I wanted to say and then we pared it back yeah. enormously. And that's one of the exciting things about writing a book is the way that there is, tends to be these other books inside the book that you've written. Yeah, and it's a yeah. matter of actually kind of just, as you say, pairing it back and suddenly there is something more fragile and, but more meaningful inside it. Yeah, yeah. And then sometimes there are other things that um, you, just, you just go, um, okay, that doesn't have a place in this book, but it yeah. may be the seeds of another book or something else or... Um, uh, sometimes I think it's almost like a broth, you know, you reduce it, reduce it, reduce it, till you've distilled it to the absolute essence of what it is that you want to say. Um, so you haven't left the Scots metaphors behind at all, really? No. <laughs> Not at all. So this, do you, uh, I think it's about time we threw it open to questions from the audience, yeah. but I, one last question, do you have some projects in mind? I mean, do you, are you... Are you still going to work as a comedian or what what are you what are your what are your what's your direction i'm really interested to see at this age at 54 um what this book will generate what changes it will bring in my life how it will change the vibration of myself and people around me and to just sort of let it see what happens right. and how it unfolds um and uh, comedy is always going to be a part of my life i love it i'm addicted to it um but in some ways, uh, I'm very curious to see what other paths there might be out there for me as well. And then they, they may arise or they may not. But, um, but I've, I've sort of, I think in some ways, thrown that out to the universe in order to see what comes back. So I'm just, I've got my catcher's mitt and I'm just waiting now. Okay, so let's throw it open to the hole for a minute. Uh, we're recording this for our podcast. Because of that, if you've got a question, I'd like you please to wait till the microphone comes to you. And Chris has got uh, a roaming mic there at the back. Do we have anyone who would like to ask Magda a question? I'm sure there's gonna be a forest of hands here. Magda, the, the character in Kath and Kim is painfully tragic. Really quite um, difficult to watch at times. Yeah. Where did she come from? Good question. Um, <coughs> and that's something I talk about in the book and that quite a lot of people say to me, I think that actually the key to the success of Sharon Strzecki is that she um, is a sad clown, you know, and that people really resonate to her, the sadness in her and the struggle in her. Um, some people do find her actually unbearable, unbearably sad to watch. Um, but I would say that, you know, as I say in the book, she sort of vibrates with bass notes of sadness and melancholy that I think are part of the, the kind of the heritage that I bring, this, this, the, the Polish, Scottish, Irish, you know, I mean the Irish. Don't even get me started on the Irish side of the family. That's so full on, the Irish side. Wow. Um, and Sharon's name, Sharon's, Sharon Karen Streslecki, can you believe it? <laughs> surname Streslecki, which of course should be pronounced Streletsky because he was a Polish explorer. Um, and um, um, she's an Irish dancer, so she's that combo. Yeah. <laughs> but she came from 
Um, two things, I think she, emotionally she vibrates with a lot of my emotions, um, but um, I was playing a lot of baseball at the time and I became so obsessed with the, the people who run the whole thing, the volunteers, you know, the people that do the little league coaching and all that sort of stuff. And Sharon really embodies the, the spirit of volunteerism. <laughs> but she also, in truth, came from the wig because um, I went into the wig department and found this fantastic red pudding bowl haircut <laughs> wig and I put it on my head and I just went, comedy gold. <laughs> but just as a kind of follow-up to Michael's question there, there is an enormous amount of courage for you, it seems to me, to inhabit that role in some ways because it's, it, it makes you so vulnerable. Sharon is so vulnerable and, and you take on that position yeah, I suppose so. There were times, I'll be honest with you, if we did more than, if we, would, if we had done more than eight episodes per season, I think it would have been too toxic. Um, I think to perform a character like that who's put upon so often um, takes a toll in some ways. And that's why, much as I love playing Sharon, it was great to just do it for eight episodes at a time. Um, but I loved the opportunity to convey those sort of fragile emotions and that vulnerability. You know, I found that very beautiful. And I, and I, I love Sharon, I adore Sharon, you know, yeah. And, and you took her out of the television program too, because Sharon, you would, you would go to awards nights as Sharon, not as, not as Magda. <laughs> yeah, where I very famously passed or rather, he passed me. Heath Ledger passed me. I, I, saw, I, I, saw, I saw your mouth after he'd been near it. Yeah, yeah, pash rash. Yeah. Um, no, that was, I, I won't, I, I will never forget that night. That was, that, that night, that was amazing. Um, yeah, Sharon does get out and about and do other things at times, which is good. I think it's good for her. I've seen you perform uh, live, mostly in Melbourne, and I feel that you communicate particularly well with your audience and you seem to enjoy doing that. I wonder when you're writing, do you have an audience in mind? Are you writing for an audience or is it more for yourself? Um, the audience I had in mind when I was writing was Meryl Streep. <laughs> what do you think of this bit, Meza? <laughs> um, no, I, I really do love, I really do love connecting with an audience. I really do. I, I'm, I'm loving this book tour. It's, it's not often that I get a chance to get out and, um, and meet people in this sort of way. And, uh, and I really treasure that connection I have with the Australian public. I'm, I'm, I consider myself extremely fortunate. I have a very good relationship with the Australian public and generally even not too bad, you know, with the Australian press. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I think um, there's something about um, live performance that, uh, you know, it has a soul to it that's quite beautiful. But, but, you know, you can imaginatively put yourself in that space when you're writing anyway. Um, you, you kind of think of people that you know or you just, um, I don't know, imagine a room full of people like this in some ways. Speaking of that uh, relationship you've got with the public, I, I watched the 7.30 report interview that you did with uh, Lee Sales, and in that you said, look, I know I'm not supposed to say it, but having a really good relationship with the public is in many ways uh, compensation for not having a good relationship in my love life or so. Is that right? Am I quoting you correctly yeah, here? Yeah, well, kind of, well, sort of. I, th I think... Um, um, uh, well, relationships have always, you know, been a bit of a minefield for me. But, but I think in some ways, um, having had the the rocky experience that I had with my um, coming to terms with my sexuality, which I I was one of the ones who struggled there. There are plenty of people who don't, but I wasn't one of them. And I'm a voice, I suppose, in some ways, for those who struggle. Uh, and in some ways, um, that relationship that I have with the Australian public has, you know, I mean, it, it, it has, there's 
you know, love and connection there, I think, in a very real way as well, that's very sustaining, you know. Although you can't, you, you know, you get feedback from people. Like, I see people in the street, so it's not completely abstract. So you, yeah. you have a connection. And, and certainly at times when you're going through a rough time, um, it can be a very supportive thing. And, you know, when I was going through the whole Jenny Craig weight loss thing, people were unbelievably supportive. And, um, you know, similarly, after I came out, people were very supportive. And that, you know, that does definitely sustain you. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't, uh, I, let, I let myself, for a long time, I think I didn't let myself really feel it or believe it. Um, and then I, over the years, I just really let it in. Hmm. Yeah, and it's been great. Would you consider by any chance doing something like a live television show on a regular basis? Uh, would I do a live TV show? Say, like, hosting something on a regular basis. Um, I don't know. It depends on the stress level of it, you know? If my nerves could kind of handle it. It's pretty full on, that stuff. Live TV is really, really full on. And, um, um, you know, there's a high burnout rate. So it would, it would completely depend on what the program is about and, you know, all of that. But... Yeah, we'll see. Uh, uh, Magda, I've been a huge fan of yours for years and years. And uh, fast forward, I remember um, my generation coming through. It was such an amazingly funny show uh, in the late 80s and seemed to sort of break new comedy ground. Um, but I've got a question about um, your sexuality uh, and what it was like uh, comparatively coming through in the 70s to... Um, I guess post uh, post late 80s or 90s when it felt like um, gay issues rose to the surface and there was an embracing in uh, public life of of the gay you know gay and lesbian issues in um, in society and I'm just wondering uh, when we look at say Australia Day being appropriated by you know bogans with Aussie flags and stuff like that. I, I, I don't know where we stand now. Whether Australia's a, a better place or a worse place in some ways, and uh, and how you might feel about that. Um, oh look, it's a lot better place in a lot of ways. Um, up until about maybe eight years ago, there were 87 laws that discriminated against homosexual people, and they've all been that's all been redressed. So just even legally, we're in a better position, um, and there's certainly much more awareness. But in terms of performers, I still know young gay performers who live totally their lives completely gay, but they don't want to be typecast as that. So when they look at taking that next step up um, to becoming really public figures, they, and I'm surprised, I'm surprised at some of them who are, who's, are very comfortable with their sexuality, but they're wary of being pigeonholed. Um, and there are some young gay actors I know who are completely closeted because they feel that if they were to come out, they'd never be cast in a lead romantic role. So a lot of things have gotten better. Um, you, you know, it's, it's still a tricky road to hoe in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And there is the pressure for some young people where they're kind of forced out of the closet, you know, with their friends and stuff, saying, well, you're gay, be cool about it, we know you are, why, do, why are you worrying about it? And their own psyche hasn't caught up. I mean, look at Ian Thorpe. You know, I mean, he was 15. 15, you know, I mean, who knows who or what they are at that age, you know? Yeah. And that level of scrutiny. I, I, I really feel for Thorpey. I think we've got time for just one more question. Magda, Magna, I'm just interested about your father's background. When you were growing up, did he talk to you a great deal about what he did? And were you proud of him? Or were you a bit shocked? Or did you find out more about him later in life? Was um, he prepared to talk about what he'd done to you and the family? No. No, he didn't talk about it. He, when I was in my late teens, if I would ask him what he did in the war, he would kind of laugh it off and say I was an assassin and, you know, what do you, I mean, how, what do you say? And um, I didn't take it very seriously and I never really thought about it because I was in my late teens, you know. You, you don't really... But it registered. There would be little bits of things that he would say, but generally he was of the view of not wanting to burden his kids with what he'd been through and what he'd done. And he pretty much wanted to just shut the door on the past anyway. Um, and um, so he, 
it was revealed, and that's the way it's kind of revealed in the book too, like the peeling back of the layers of an onion, you know, over time, more and more inf information. As I grew older and was more able to hear things, um, so that like in, when I was 36 in, in 1997, I went and filmed him talking, uh, and I asked him, I said, would you mind, I would like to film your story um, and then maybe one day make a book or a film. And, and he said, I will talk about this once and once only. But he, was, he knew that I was filming him and he knew that I was going to write the story. Um, but he, that was when he really fully told me everything that had gone on and when I fully understood it. Yeah. But until then, um, you know, in that way that most of us pick up things about our parents. And, and in many ways, that's the that, that whole subject of this book, isn't it? And not just him talking about it, but you coming to terms with it and the effect it's had on your life in some ways. Yeah. There's yeah. This, as you said, there's these two converging stories that are happening there. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, that interweaving of the generations, you know, I think we all know and feel that. And, and um, hopefully in telling my story, other people will relate and and be maybe illuminated in some ways about um, the complex patterns of their own families. And then as we understand the patterns, then maybe we can stop repeating them. Let's hope so. Please put your hands together for Margaret. Thank you. As, as always, I've got just a couple of thanks to give. I'd like first, please, to thank Text Publishing, who has been responsible for bringing not just Magda to Mulaney this year, but also Tim Flannery, Kate Holden, uh, Kate Grenville, and Ramona Caval, amongst others. And it's been a fantastic, they've been a very, very generous to the town of Mulaney. Their representative is here, so thank you very much to Text. I'd like to thank uh, Rosetta Books. I'd like to thank Mulaney Bookshop, who do the ticketing for these events, which is an enormous job, particularly when we have a sellout event like this and suddenly tickets are a premium. Uh, I'd like to thank Ken and Val on the bar, Anne Koenig for her continued support of these events and as the representative of the Mulaney Community Centre, Clem on sound and lights, Adrian for recording, uh, Mark Newman, who is going to uh, adapt Adrian's recording for podcast, uh, I'd like to thank you, our audience, for a continued support. Can I ask you once more, please, to put your hands together for Paul Williams and Margaret Zabanski. <laughs>